As you find your seat, take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, and we're going to be looking tonight at uh, the Abrahamic covenant, the the promise, the relationship that God established uh, with this man, Abraham. Tonight, the title of my sermon is uh, Revealing Grace, Revealing Grace, because throughout this section, what we're going to see is God reveals several things to this guy, Abraham, but most of all, he reveals his grace to him in everything. Uh, And so Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8 is where we'll be tonight. Um, I don't know if you guys know who these guys are behind me on the screen. Uh, Anybody seen them before? Okay, all right. I didn't realize this, but Adrian uh, uh, shared with me that I I used a Duck Dynasty intro last fall, so I guess I'm due for one a year. Um, But there's this really cool story about it. This this lady at my mom's church um, about a year ago... um, she was taking up tickets to this event that they were having at their church, and they were they had these guys to come in and speak. I think Jace, uh, the guy with the black toboggan, uh, whose beard I'm attempting to emulate, um, Jace, and then somebody else. I can't, I think it was Phil, maybe. But they were uh, supposed to come and speak at this engagement at my parents' church in Durham, and uh, and so everybody's you know buying these tickets, and the things are selling out just like hotcakes, man. And so this lady, her job is to stand at the door and to take up tickets, and so she's doing her job faithfully, you know. And uh, this guy comes to approach the door, and uh, he goes to walk in, and she goes, <clears throat> excuse me, sir, um, you, can't, you can't go in. You don't have a ticket. And he goes, well, uh, you know, I, I need to kind of need to go in tonight. And she goes, well, you really can't go in if you don't have a ticket. And he said, do you think you could get somebody in there to come verify, you know, who I am? Uh, and, of course, she has no idea that she's standing there talking to Jace Robertson, you know, and she won't let him in the door because Jace doesn't have a ticket. You know, nobody had revealed to this lady who the guy was standing there talking to her. So somebody comes out and looks at him and goes, oh, man, that's Jason. So she looks at this lady and looks at Jason. She's like, oh, my goodness. You know, I didn't realize what I was doing. And so they let Jason on through, obviously. Uh, and for her, this is probably an embarrassing moment, you know, because everybody's supposed to know who these guys are, I guess. And uh, this lady was kind of left out in the cold with that one. Um, but in Genesis 17, God appears to Abram. And when God shows up and appears to him, he reveals Three things to Abram that we're going to see in verses 1 through 8. He reveals his name. He reveals his expectation of Abram in this covenant. And he reveals his plans. So you could say his name, his expectation, and his plans. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of uh, Abram, or or who we'll eventually call Abraham uh, in this, I want to give you just a little bit of background, just kind of sketch out a few chapters very quickly. Because if we don't understand his story, kind of the bigger Uh, context of it, then um, a lot of things really don't make sense. Let's start at Genesis 1. All right, we'll do this quickly. Genesis 1 and 2, uh, God creates. He speaks and he creates things and life comes into being. And he gives this command. He says, don't do what? Eat from that tree. And what do Adam and Eve do? Eat from the tree. Right? And they plunge the world uh, into sin and darkness and all that stuff in Genesis chapter 3. Tim Keller says that after chapter 3, the world begins to spiral downward um, towards its death. So humanity is on this like funnel. If you picture a funnel spiraling downward towards uh, its death. If you think about Abram, um, excuse me, Abram's uh, wife Sarah, before her name was changed, um, Abram's wife Sarah was barren. And so she couldn't have any kids. And in that culture, that was a major no-no. That was a big deal for a woman not to be able to pass on the family line. So they had no heir. Now, Abram's family was the last family on the planet 
who knew anything about the worship of God. Okay, so if you trace Abram's family, he goes all the way back to Noah, who goes all the way back to Seth, who is obviously the child of Adam and Eve. And so this godly uh, heritage or lineage was passed down to Abraham or to Abram. But what actually happened um, around chapter 11 is Abram's family goes over to, um, to, to pagan idol worship. And so at one time they knew about this God and they worshipped him and they rejected the pagan gods around them. And now, if you read chapter 11, Abram's dad's name, Terah, actually uh, comes from the worship of these lunar gods that the pagans around them are worshipping. And so, uh, in a sense, Abram's line physically is dwindling down to nothing. And so if his family is the last one who spiritually knows who God is, then the world, uh, as we know it, humanity, is really coming to nothing at the beginning of chapter 12. And so when God calls Abram out, he calls his name and he says, I want you to follow me. He picks him up out of spiritual and physical barrenness and he saves humanity in that sense. And then in Genesis 15, if we keep moving through, God initiates, he starts this covenant with this guy Abram. He just doesn't provide a lot of the specifics that we see in chapter 17. So in Genesis 17, God begins to kind of more clearly uh, lay out uh, who he is and what he expects of Abram and his plans for Abram's life. So in a, in a sense, you could kind of look at it this way. If you look at the big picture, the whole story of Abram uh, is, a, is a story of resurrection is what it is. It's foreshadowing a resurrection that happened way down the road, uh, if you think about it, because the power of God is what calls Abram out of uh, the darkness that he was living in and gives him a new purpose and extends to him this life-giving relationship. The power of God calls Jesus out of the grave. And so if you look at the big picture, Abram's story is foreshadowing the story of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller points out that uh, this guy Abram, actually um, three major world religions all point back to him. If you look at Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all three of those trace their family line back to this guy. And so you can't understand world history... You can't understand humanity unless you know something about this guy's story. And so the story of Abram or Abraham uh, is fundamental to kind of understanding the rest of this. If you get confused between Abram and Abraham, uh, I heard one pastor put it like this. Abram uh, means father. Um, uh, Abraham means father of many nations. And so Abram means daddy. Abraham means big daddy. All right. So that's kind of how you can kind of think about it. It kind of simplifies it. So we're going to look first at how God reveals his name to Abram. And if I kind of mix it up, y'all just forgive me. Genesis 17 begins like this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. In the Hebrew, it's El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face. And so the first thing God does when he shows up and he speaks to this guy, Abram, is to do what? To tell him who he is. He tells him his name. He says, I am God Almighty. In the Hebrew, it's El Shaddai. El Shaddai, two words. Now, the commentators disagree on exactly what this means because uh, some people say it means one thing. Some say it means another. But uh, I think we can kind of sum it up like this. El means power. All right, so we think of Elohim or uh, El Shaddai, some other names of God. El means power. Shaddai gives the idea of a strong mountain. Wiersbe points out it's the idea of a strong mountain. So living in the mountains, when you look around and you see a large mountain, you picture, you think of strength. 
You think of strength. This name uh, is the first time this name appears in Scripture, and it appears 48 total times in the New Testament. Interestingly, this name El Shaddai is often connected to two things, the divine promise of children and also connected to the nations. All right, We're going to get into the nations in a little bit, but this is a super important name uh, that God gives to Abram. What we can be sure of when we see this name of God is this, that this name of God points to the fact that God is all-powerful and he is all-sufficient that he can do anything and that there's nothing that is too great for him. And I was thinking of uh, the book of Luke, chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel shows up and appears to Mary, and he brings this news to her. And what does she say? She says, let it be as you say. There's nothing that's too hard for God, right? With God, everything is possible. So when God reveals his name to Abram, he's describing who I am and what I am like. Think about what God had to do. He had to take uh, nothing and make it into something. Sounds like creation, doesn't it? He had to take barrenness and turn it into fruitfulness. To fulfill all these things, God had to multiply one man's line into nations, and he had to bring kings out of this line, which originally had no heir. There was nobody to begin with. He had to provide a place, land for this nation of people, and God himself had to be faithful to see these promises through. And so God had to be willing to stick with this guy, Abram, through some of his knucklehead moments, you know, in order to see these promises through. The fact of the matter is this, our faith can stand firmly only in God when we're certain that God alone is sufficient for our needs. Our faith can stand only firmly in God when we're certain that he is all we need. All right, you could say it like this, he becomes all we want when we know that he is all we need. Does that make sense? He becomes all that we want when we understand and we are confident that God is all that we need. If you think about it like this, if you go to the bank and you get a cashier's check, all right, and you're going to have like some work done in your house or something, you get a cashier's check, um, what does that check say to the person you're paying? It says that there are sufficient funds uh, to cover this check. That's in essence what God is saying. He's given a guarantee and saying, my name is like this cashier's check. It will cover the promises that I make. And so when Abram hears the name El Shaddai, he understands I can take this promise to the bank. But second, God reveals his expectation of Abram. Look at verses one and two. He appears and he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. If we continue in chapter 17, he gives another obligation uh, that we won't go into tonight, but he gives the sign of circumcision. All right, it's the sign of the covenant of the Jewish people. But here he says, walk before me and be blameless. Now, if we look at verse one and God says this, when I read this and God tells us to be blameless, I kind of get a little shifty. I get a little nervous because I think I can't do this. Like there's no way I can walk blamelessly before God. Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of this perfect standard that God has for us. So what does God mean when he says walk blamelessly before me? There has to be some other meaning than perfect because Abram's not going to walk perfectly. If you look at the phrase walk before me, essentially it means this. God is saying live in light of the fact that I'm paying attention to your every step. Have you thought about that today? Have you thought about the fact that God is observing every single step that you make today. Every thought, God is observing it. Every action, God is observing it. Every way that we treat and discipline and train our kids, God is observing it. The business deal at work, God observed it. 
the conversation over the phone with, uh, with a friend. God observed it. And we may look at that and say, well, you know, that kind of makes me nervous. I mean, is God like ready to put his thumb down on me every time I mess up? I don't think that's it at all. I think God is observing our lives because he loves us. It's that simple. Because he wants to be intimately acquainted with every moment in our day. All right, he wants to know the context of our lives, and so he's observing every part of it. He says to be blameless. What does that mean? It means to walk in integrity, to aim at integrity. So set your sights on integrity, not hypocrisy. So Abram's uh, end of the deal was to devote himself wholly to walking in righteousness before God. All right, God didn't say, listen, I've established this relationship with you. Now I want you to earn my favor. He says, I want you to do this because I've already shown you my favor, all right? He says, be blameless, not because you have to earn it, but because I've already given it to you. Think of it like this, a parent-child relationship. A mom and dad decide the standards that they're gonna set for their kids. And those expectations are repeated over and over and over until what? That child understands and begins to abide by those expectations and those rules. Like for me, when I was growing up, my, my mom and dad were super strict on my manners. I mean, they, like, I had to say, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, all the time to anybody, even my parents. And uh, they showed this video to Carrie a while back, but they had me coming down the hallway. I'm about Ryan's age, and, uh, and they called my name, uh, and, and I, I answered, and I started coming for them, and I can't find my dad. And instead of saying dad or daddy, I was calling him sir. And they hear me on the video. You can hear me going, sir, sir, you know, looking for my dad because I was so trained that that's how I was supposed to speak to adults that I even called my dad, sir, until he finally had to, they were on the ball field actually when this kind of got broke. And uh, one of the parents come up to my, my dad was like, that's a little bit strict, don't you think? And he's like, listen, I'm trying to break him up. Like he won't quit calling me that, you know? Uh, but, but we have these expectations that we set for our kids. When I didn't use my manners, when I didn't say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, whatever, that didn't make me an ex-son. That didn't get me kicked out of the family because I messed up. Because I didn't earn my way into the family by using manners, did I? There was this existing relationship I had with my mom and I had with my dad. And regardless of how well I did following their expectations or how poorly I did, I was still their son. That doesn't change. That's how God expected Abraham to operate. He says, listen, Walk blamelessly before me, aim at integrity, not because you have to do this to earn my love. I've already given you my love. He says, I want you to do this because of what I've done for you and what I'm going to do. This is Abraham's expectation. When we think about us today, God has promised us, if we read John chapter 1, verse 12, God's promised us the right to be children of God if we will do what? Believe on Jesus, his son. However, that expectation comes with the sense that we are expected to lead a new life. Like we are expected to walk in newness of life if we received Christ as our Savior. But here's the catch. Can you walk in newness of life on your own? I can't. And so unless I go back to God every single day and depend on him and say, listen, help me, I'm broken, I'm weak, I can't do this on my own. Unless I go back to him for his help each day, then guess what? I can't fulfill his expectation for me. And so the grace in God revealing his expectation, Abram, and to you and to me, is this. When he expects something of us, we're to go out and walk in integrity. Well, I get out and I decide I'm going to walk in integrity, and I realize I've got to go back to God in order to do this. I can't fulfill his expectation for me unless I have his help in me. 
Does that make sense? And so the expectation is this. It drives us back to God. That's the grace in the expectation of Abram's life because God lays this out and he says, listen, I want you to walk blamelessly. I want you to lead a life of integrity, but you can't do that unless you walk faithfully with me. And so the promise drove Abram back to God. Abram leading a blameless life didn't guarantee the covenant. If God had said to Abram, listen, Abram, if you keep all these things, then I promise I'll establish this stuff in your life. That's not a covenant anymore. What does that become? A contract, right? And God doesn't operate in contracts. If he did, guess what would happen? We would lose our salvation every time we blew it, right? What would have happened to Abram? What would have happened to Noah? What would happen to all these guys who slipped up one time? They would have lost that relationship with God. And so when somebody comes up and they're like, you know, oh, you can lose your salvation for this. God doesn't operate that way. He doesn't operate, I'm going to take it away if you mess up. You know, he doesn't expect us to walk in that kind of fear. It's a fear in the reverence of him. When we realize the free gift that we've been given through Christ, what happens in us? We overflow with thankfulness and joy. And so when I meditate on the gospel and I realize everything that God has done for me, what does it do? It drives me right back to God. Because when I meditate on the gospel, I think, man, I want some more of that. I want to hear more of what he has for me. And so when we understand we're supposed to lead a new life like Abram was understanding, then we're driven back to God because we realize we have to have his help. And so if you're here tonight and you know Christ as your Savior, aren't you glad that your salvation doesn't depend on you? I am. Because if my salvation depended on me, I could not get out of the bed in the morning without blowing it. I couldn't make it to lunchtime without being an unchristian all over again. I mean, I would never see sunrise to sundown keeping myself intact because I blow it in so many ways and so do you. And so the covenant here depends on God's faithfulness, not our faithfulness. It drives us back to him. But third, we see that God reveals his plans in Abram's life. Look at 17, 4 through 8. Let's read that together. All right, let's start in 3, actually. Then Abram fell on his face, we might say, in worship. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. What happens in verse three? When God reveals his name and God reveals his expectation, does Abram take off saying, all right, let's go. I'm ready to lead a Bible study. Who's with me? No, Abram, is, he doesn't have words. Nothing comes to, to his mind. He falls on his face. He hits the ground. He's nose in the dirt, and he's worshiping God. In his day, it was a sign of worship. Because he was, he was flat, he was prostrate, he was, uh, he was helpless. If, if somebody comes along to attack him, what's he going to do? He's laying on his face. It's a picture of surrender. He's embracing what God had to say. I think we drastically undersell the power of posture and the power of silence. We don't think about this in our daily quiet time. I have a chair I sit in, I have a lamp I turn on and my cup of coffee, and I want to be as comfortable as I can, 
right? Anybody have one of those little chair you stay in? All right, no, nobody? Okay, all right, just me. All right, <clears throat> so anyway, I do. So apparently I'm the only one underselling uh, the power of posture. But I'll tell you, there's been a time in my life when I realized I heard this sermon by Adrian Rogers and he talked about getting low in the dirt. And I thought, well, I'm gonna try that. But I thought, I don't want anybody to see me, you know, so I'm gonna go out in the woods and do this. So I went to Curtis Creek. I might've said this before. I went to Curtis Creek and I decided I'm gonna get low before God. So uh, I'm out there, I think by myself, unless Gail's slipping around watching me in the woods. And I'm by myself and I brush out a little place in the dirt and I get down on my knees and I kid you not, I dug out a little hole for my nose, all right? And I laid down in the dirt with my nose in this hole. Because I thought, I'm going to get as low as I can before God. So I scraped out the hole. I got on my knees. I got like this. And I stood up. And I kind of looked around for a second. And I was like, anybody seeing this? You know? I mean, there's still that, that tinge, that sense of pride in me. I'm by myself in the woods. Are you kidding? You know? And I kind of scraped a little hole out there. And I lay down in the dirt. And I kid you not, probably one of the top three or four times in my life that I felt like I was able to, to uh, commune with God, to hear from him. I shut my mouth. I didn't say a word. I didn't have words. When you're laying in the dirt and you talk, dirt gets in your mouth. So I was just laying there. And I'm like, I'm, I'm just laying there listening. And God's just so pounding some things into my heart and speaking to me. And I think in the middle of 17, 1 through 8, we want to talk about covenants and we want to talk about nations and we want to talk about kings and those things are great. And we'll get to those in a minute. But my question for you is this. Have you ever gotten quiet before God? Have you ever, have you ever just shut your mouth? just switched off your brain and just listened you ever just got by yourself dug out a little hole in dirt find a spot in your house somewhere and just shut your mouth and listen to god abram said way more in his silence than any 10 or 15 words he could have strung together his silence said a whole lot he said i'm worshiping god and i'm receiving his words see we talk so much sometimes We don't have room to hear God. We drown out his voice, man. Partly because there's so much pride in us that we think that God needs to hear what we have to say instead of us just shutting up and listening to what God has to say. In verses 4 through 8, God lays out his plans for Abram and his future. I summarize these just to kind of help me understand them because they're couched in so much biblical language that they're easy to lose. In verse 4, he says you're going to be the father of many nations, all right? So many people groups, we could say, are gonna come from you. Now, just to clarify, when you see nations in the Old Testament, many times it's referring to unbelieving people groups. It's referring to people groups outside of the nation of Israel. And so he says, you're gonna be the father of these nations. In verse five, his name is now changed. We talked about that, daddy, and now he's big daddy. In verse six, God says, your descendants are going to multiply like crazy, all right? Verse 6 again, he says, kings and rulers are going to be in your family tree. So if I'm Abraham and I walk up in the camp and I tell everybody, hey, God just changed my name. And guess what? I'm going to be the father of many nations and kings are going to come from my line. And it's going to be awesome. What are they going to do? They're going to laugh at me, you know? Paul says in Romans 4 that uh, if I'm Abram, I was as good as dead, right? Because he was nearing 100 years old at this point. He was 99. And his wife was way past the age of childbearing. But he believes God, he has faith in God that kings and rulers are gonna come from his line. Verse seven, God says this covenant that we're going to start together is gonna last forever. It's an everlasting, never-ending relationship. Verse eight, 
He says, I've got a special plot of land just for you and your family. I'm going to give you this huge piece of land that's just for you. And then verse 8, what I love right here at the end, he says, and I will be their God. I'll be your God. I'll be their God. He says, I will always be your God. If he didn't promise him anything else but this last sentence, if he didn't promise him anything but calling him out and say, I will be your God. For Abram, that was enough. All the other stuff was just icing on the cake. All the land and all the people and the kings and everything else, that's just icing on the cake. But he says, I will always be your God. Now, if you're thinking, where's the tide of the New Testament here? Think about Matthew 28, 20. What does Jesus say at the very end? He says, and behold, I'll be with you always, even to the end. I will always be with you. I mean, if you're, th- if you're Abram and God is speaking to you, or Abraham at this point, you're thinking to yourself, like, this can't get any better. This is incredible, the things that God is promising me. And then you step back if you're Abraham and you go, man, I didn't do a thing to deserve this. There's nothing I can do to earn this. Like, God, God in his grace, just for whatever reason, picked me up out of this mess, out of this, this false idol worship and promised me all these things. Why? Why? What does Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7 say? God saves us so that through the coming ages, he can show us how good he is. You know why God saves you? You know why God changes you? So he can show you how good he is. So he can show you that it's not about you, that it's about him. And for all eternity, we don't get to celebrate us. We get to know better this God. We get to know perfectly and intimately this God and celebrate him and realize how awesome he is. We could talk about a lot of things in verses 4 through 8, but there's two I want to point out, two promises uh, in God's uh, plans here. First of all, that God is going to make all these things happen. God is the initiator of every inch of this covenant. Look at his words. He says, I will make you the father of many nations. I'm going to change your name. I will multiply your family line. I will give you this land and I will be your God. God's the initiator of every square inch of these good things happening in Abram's life had nothing at all to do with him. One commentator said this, let us have no other foundation for our faith than this word, I. Paul says it like this, I won't boast in anything except for what? The cross of Christ. I'm not going to boast in anything I've done because it all falls flat at some point, but I can boast in this cross of this God who loved me and sent his son to die for me perfectly, laying down his life and giving his life, shedding his blood so that I can be forgiven. There's nothing that we have that God didn't give us. There's nothing we have to brag about, not a thing. It could all be taken away like that. It's all God's. He just dispenses it how he wants to. He's the beginning. He's the end. He calls us. He saves us. He changes us to be like his son. And then what? One day, he's coming back to get us. So we can't even steal a shred of credit. We can't even cut off a corner of God's glory and keep it for our own. The second, God's plan includes kings and nations. This is fascinating to me. If you go to the book of Matthew, Matthew traces Jesus' family line or his genealogy all the way back to Abraham. If you read that genealogy, who's included? Kings. Now, what did God tell Abraham he was going to do? He was going to put kings in his line. So if you look all throughout Jesus' family line, there's all these kings everywhere. So God clearly did what he said he was going to do. But if all of Scripture is about Jesus Christ then I have to think this promise of kings wasn't about David 
or Solomon or anybody else. But it was about the ultimate king, the king of heaven, Jesus Christ, who came for the nations. He came for the nations. Remember Abram's name change when when God takes and extends it from, from Abram, from daddy, to Abraham, big daddy? That was to remind him that this covenant promise is not just yours, that I'm going to extend your name like I'm going to extend my offer to the world, to the goyim in the Hebrew, the nations, to the unbelieving peoples of this world. He says, I'm not just blessing you for you to hoard all this stuff. I'm not just giving you all these things, these promises, so that you'll keep it all to yourself. He says, I'm giving it to you because watch, one day I'm going to spread it out to the world. You see, it's grace that God even called Abraham out of the physical and spiritual darkness that he was in. It was all his grace. It was grace that God even chose to reveal himself and call out his name and reveal his plans to Abraham. And it's God's grace that he calls you and he calls I to be a part of this extended covenant where he calls us to faith in his son, Jesus. When we come across something like this in Genesis 17, there's only two ways we can respond to this. If you know Jesus Christ is your savior, then you have to look back at the story of Abram and say, this is foundational for my relationship with God. If God never chose this man and God never brought him out of where he was and showed him how great he was, then guess what? It would have never been extended to you. But God did. In his grace, he revealed himself to Abraham. And so if you're a believer tonight and you're like, well, what do I need to do? How do I respond? I'd get on your face. I'd find somewhere in the next few days to lay down, scratch out a little place in the dirt, stick your nose in it, get quiet, and just listen. 